Now as we really start to get into the argument of Hebrews, or of Hebrews, it's been a while since we've been in Hebrews, uh, Romans, uh, we'll, we'll start to take it more than one verse at a time. Uh, Paul has stated his case and now he unfolds his case, beginning uh, in verse 19, although uh, for the sake of continuity, and really we never finished that verse, we just considered the first part of that verse, we'll begin in verse 18, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through verse 23. And hear the word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world as invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and godhood, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Nor, nor were they, uh, nor were thankful, and, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Let me just make a quick, a quick note. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for your word. Uh, In in many ways, the truths which we are considering here are the the most terrible of all. And in some sense, these are the truths which men are most eager to suppress. Not merely that there is a God, but that he is angry with this world and that his wrath is revealed against it on account of sin. And we ask, O God, that we as Christian people would have uh, an ear to hear even this message. The church would hold on to it and boldly declare it, though many churches will not. May we here submit even to this truth and even uh, find that we are, like Jonathan Edwards, those who glorify God and praise him and adore him, even in the damnation of sinners. For therein your glory is revealed as much as in any other of your actions. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've seen and considered what is uh, the central argument. Uh, you, you could say it's in verses 16 and 17, or you could look at it more broadly as beginning in verse 14 and then ending in verse 18, which I think is a better way to see the summary statement or even the thesis statement where Paul states his purpose uh, for writing the letter and uh, also his, uh, his central idea, which he then goes to unfold in verses 19 and following. And so just to review that, Paul says that he's a debtor to all men uh, to preach the gospel. And for this reason, he's eager to preach the gospel uh, to all, even to those who are in Rome, verse 15. The reason he's eager uh, is because he's not ashamed of the gospel. And the reason he's not ashamed of the gospel is because it's the power of God of salvation for all who believe. And the reason it's the power of God is because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And the reason the righteousness of God is revealed, this is what we saw last time. The reason righteousness is the the crucial category here that reveals the power of God to save is because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That is, in essence, the summary of uh, Paul's thought and of the epistle. And having uh, stated last then the wrath of God, he begins with that thought, beginning in verse 19, and he will unfold that to the end of 
uh, verse 20 of chapter 3. And then beginning in verse 21 of chapter 3, he begins with the righteousness of God that is revealed from heaven. And the, the reason he begins with wrath, we saw last time, was because the gospel makes no sense apart from it. The gospel of the power of God and the righteousness of God. If the gospel is a revelation of the righteous power of God to save, how does that make any sense in a setting where men think that they are righteous? Where they think that they need no salvation and they have no sin. You remember, for instance, in the gospels, how Jesus told the parable of the publican. He told that parable to those who thought they were righteous. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Or what Jesus says uh, at Matthew's table when the question was asked to him why he ate with tax collectors and sinners. And you remember what Jesus said in response to that. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. How does that make any sense at all? Except in the context in which God's wrath is being revealed. And so that's what Paul is proposing to do here. In essence, what Jesus was doing in those statements. He is providing the context for, the, uh, for his glorious arguments about the righteousness of God that is revealed from heaven in the gospel. And especially in the person of Jesus Christ, which again, he begins to unfold in chapter 3, verse 21. The righteousness revealed from heaven and seen especially at the cross. The context of this revelation of righteousness is the wrath of God. The good news answers the bad news. That was basically what we saw last time. You remember also uh, what Jesus says famously in John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that uh, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Did you catch it there? Should not perish. You see men are perishing Jesus says. But he came into the world and God sent his son into the world to address that fact. The fact that men are perishing. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost and perishing. Yes, but why are they perishing? This is what Paul begins uh, to expound in verse 19. The reason men are perishing. The reason men need the gospel. Or if you prefer, and I think this is a good way of looking at Romans. Paul, having stated his theme again in verses 14 through 18 which is the gospel, in essence, he goes on to answer a series of objections. And this is a good way, I think, uh, to read the book of Romans, beginning in verse 19. What he does there all the way to the end is to answer one objection after another. Sometimes he states it, other times he doesn't, it's implied. But it's clear he is anticipating an objection, he's answering it. And one by one, he clears the way for the full acceptance of the truth, which again is stated at the beginning of Uh, The book in verses 14 through 19. And there are two objections which he answers in these four verses, verses uh, 14 through 19. The first is, what is it that makes God's wrath necessary? Which is, I, I think, an important question. Stop and consider again what he's saying in verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Consider what is meant specifically by the wrath of God as we considered last time. Realize at the same time that not only is the book of Romans full of this doctrine as we will see. 
But so is the New Testament and so is all of Scripture. Scripture is itself a revelation of the wrath of God. But what is the wrath of God? Well, we saw that last time. The wrath of God is God's terrible hatred and anger towards sin and the sinner. It is his righteous and holy determination to punish the sinner, even to the, to the very extent of the, the eternity of hell. And, and seeing that, or let me just say one more thing, it also means fundamentally, as we see here, the wrath of God is revealed against. It tells me that God is not for me, but against me. And seeing that as the meaning of the wrath of God, we must conclude that there is nothing so terrible and dreadful and awful than the wrath of God. It presents to me a profound problem. It tells me again that God is against me and that uh, he will never cease to be against me so long as his wrath is being revealed. And so long as I am accounted a sinner in his eyes, this is a terrible problem. And understood in this way. Uh, Even though I love Luther's formula, how am I to be made right in the eyes of God? I think perhaps it would be even better to say, scripturally the formula, how am I to escape the awful wrath of God upon me and all who are like me? There is man's dilemma, scripturally. And it's it's a dilemma which we all understand in our consciences, as Paul will go on to say. But there are some who, considering this, simply conclude that the idea is just too terrible. It simply isn't possible, they say, that God should possess wrath and exercise it toward men. Which is, in essence, the fundamental flaw in what was the liberal version of the gospel in the 20th century. And which is, I would say, gaining ground again today in the church. And you even find it in their translations of the Bible. The the RSV, which was a very popular translation... Uh, takes out the word propitiation because in their eyes, and they, every time they translate it, expiation, even though the word is propitiation, because propitiation deals with wrath. It is appeasing the wrath of God. And these theologians, these translators were saying, well, we can't possibly accept that. There can't be a category of wrath in God. They are those who say God is all love. And as a result of this, they say equally that all will be saved. The universalist conception of the gospel and that's their view of the gospel it is a gospel that is devoid of wrath and is not revealed in the context of wrath they simply have no place for it they cannot accept it and even i think we could agree that in evangelical and arminian and even some reform circles more and more we find that this concept is being pushed to the side altogether and you can't do that without distorting the gospel at the same time This view is the result of a failure to answer the question that Paul is answering here. Again, the the first question, the first objection that he's answering, and that is whatever made so God, uh, God so full of wrath toward man in the first place. Now, if you understand the answer to that question, you'll have no difficulty accepting and understanding the reason, uh, the wrath of God itself. And the answer which he states here very simply in verse 18 is sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, sin. And that is something that he defines for us. He says that sin has two main components. It involves, on the one hand, ungodliness, and on the other hand, unrighteousness. That is the biblical definition. 
On this point, I was fascinated to read the commentator's analysis of these two ideas, and I found that they were not all in agreement. Uh, and, and in general, they seem to say something like this, ungodliness has to do with God, unrighteousness have to, has to do with man. You have the first table and the second table. Uh, to me, that was a little too superficial. Let me offer to you my analysis. Ungodliness, certainly, I, I think, all the commentators uh, would agree, and I agree with them, obviously deals with God. The first table of the law, the first four commandments, all, uh, all of uh, the stuff of religion, not just the belief that there is a God, but God's prescription in his word of how it is that he wishes to be worshipped and glorified. Well, uh, ungodliness simply is the negation or the opposite of godliness. It happens when you try to have morality without God, when man tries to define what is right without God and without his word and his revelation, which is exactly what we see today. It isn't the absence of morality. There's plenty of morality, plenty of discussion of virtue in society, but it's all done in the absence or without God. And as society pushes God more and more out of society, the result is ungodliness. The vertical Godward dimension of human ethics is put out. Men do not live for God. They live for self or perhaps uh, in a more virtuous sense for one another, but they don't live for God. They ignore God altogether and they pretend he isn't there and thus they are ungodly. And in fact, that's uh, the fundamental point that Paul will be making in the verses to come. The life without God, the life that pretends he isn't there. And what is the result of that? But the other category is unrighteousness. It's the second thing he met, the second uh, component of his definition of sin, which is a little harder to define. And this is where the commentators were not agreed, and I'm, uh, I think, not entirely agreed with the commentators, because most, as I say, say it deals with the horizontal dimension. But I find this difficult to accept. Horizontal, that is, man-to-man relations, what we've been considering so much in the evening sermons from Exodus. The reason I find it difficult to accept is because righteousness is the key category in Romans. We've just discovered that in verse 17. And then we find it again in verse 18. And then we find it again in verse 19. And on and on and on and on and on. And we ought to ask in defining uh, the negation of righteousness as unrighteousness, what is meant by righteousness? Righteousness has to deal with God primarily. This is what we saw two sermons ago. God has revealed his righteousness from heaven. Verse 17. The problem, which verse 18 states, is that man is unrighteous. That is, with respect to God. And then again, we see in verse 19, the problem is that God may be known because the things of God are manifest in them. Excuse me, not verse 17 uh, or verse 19, uh, but... The problem is not, it's actually at the end of verse 18, not just that men are unrighteous, but that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There's the word again. What is the truth they're suppressing in unrighteousness? It's the truth about God. And so again, unrighteousness, it would seem, has to do with my relationship to God and my failures with respect to God. Chapter 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. And thus he says, verse 19, all are accountable to God. Why? Because they're unrighteous. Chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. That's a, a good description of what unrighteousness means with respect to God. It is sinning and falling short of his glory. It, it would also be a good description, I suppose, of ungodliness as well. But this idea of righteousness or unrighteousness as its corollary is more comprehensive, uh, it would seem to me, more, uh, more comprehensive than simply as dealing with the horizontal dimension, the man-to-man relationship. It deals rather with all of the commands of God's law that I fail to keep And as a result, I am unrighteous because I am a lawless rebel. And what the law says to me as a result is that I am guilty before God, chapter 3, verse 19, and that I fall short of his glory, chapter 3, verse 23. And so both of these categories uh, have to do with God, with religion, with law, and so on. And the fact is, Because I do not do these things, instead of being godly, instead of being righteous, I am ungodly, I am unrighteous. The fact is that God is against me. And that's the first of two comments I want to make about this fact, that God's wrath is said to be against this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the the, uh, ungodliness and righteousness of men, of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That is... Not ungodliness and unrighteousness abstracted from men, but as essential to men. What God is against is man himself seen as ungodly and unrighteous. Which is the fundamental assertion of verse 18. Again, if I am a sinner, that means God is against me. And uh, what is said here in verse 18 is not simply the fact of God's wrath, but the reason assigned to it. or, Or perhaps even, as John Murray says, the direction... The fact is, God's wrath is not being revealed in this generic way, but it is being revealed in a particular direction and toward a specific object. And again, that is ungodly and unrighteous men. The reason God's wrath is revealed is that men are sinners, and so God is against them. And we will see why in the next uh, point, answering the next question, why that is a just response on God's part. But for now, we simply see that sin is something that's contrary to God in every sense. And so it is, it is right for God to oppose it. In other words, it's righteous and it's just. Because unrighteousness and ungodliness is the denial of him and the rejection of him. It is the life which is contrary to him. And thus his wrath is revealed against it. But the second question that I have, or the second comment, excuse me, which is a question, is this to the church. Are we clear about sin? Do we understand what sin is and what scripture defines as sin? I don't mean what the world defines as sin or what you might think is sinful, cultural sins or whatever. I mean what the Bible says is sin. Have we got it clear in our heads what deserves to be called sin and then what doesn't? And do we understand these two categories of ungodliness and unrighteousness? Now, the reason I ask that question is this. It is because, in my view, the main trouble with the church today is that she doesn't know how to define sin. And this ends up having terrible ramifications for her understanding of the gospel. Again, if you aren't clear about the problem or the bad news, then it won't be altogether clear what the good news is. Or if you have a false view of the bad news, uh, then it is very likely that you will have you will offer false solutions to these false problems. More often than not, the church today defines sin in some general worldly sense. 
which is not only a very clear problem today, but it's something that always has been. Satan has discovered that if he can get men to be in confusion about these two categories, ungodliness and unrighteousness, and ideally focus on one to the exclusion of the other, that is, focus on righteousness to the exclusion of godliness, he can succeed in distorting the gospel completely. And that is exactly what happened a century ago with the social gospel and what is happening today with the social justice gospel. It is a distorted view of sin that leads to a distorted view of the gospel. Satan has cleverly allowed the world's, the world's ideas of sin to creep into the church. And then what happens is we begin to define unrighteousness in the way the world does. And what is worse as a result of this, we begin to assert that the gospel is the solution to these false problems. But it's all just a massive distraction. It gets us to focus on uh, the wrong problems and the wrong solutions. Pastors, uh, for instance, today seem more interested in combating the lack of diversity in their churches than the presence of sexual immorality. Again, just to give one example. Instead of taking stock of the demographics of their congregation, pastors would have been uh, better served, or they would have better served their congregations to combat the presence of real sin, like pornography, or divorce, or Sabbath breaking. But you don't hear much talk about that today in the church, do you? And so I'd ask the question, where has the church gone wrong? Never mind uh, for a moment the wrath of God. The church doesn't even know how to define sin anymore. She's taking too, much, too many cues from the world and not listening enough to God's word. And as a result, we've lost a sense of sin and the sinfulness of sin. If you look at Paul in Romans chapter 7, and you see him there crushed under the weight of the sinfulness of sin, uh, you, you realize how it is he came to that. It was not by asking the world, where he went wrong. It was by letting the law do its work. He let the law examine his life and his heart, and in particular the Tenth Commandment. And what appeared to him as a result of that was not only a sense, a clear sense of what sin was, but also uh, a terrible sense of the sinfulness of sin. And so we can uh, say, and we clearly observe from Romans chapter 7, that this was a painful experience for Paul. And the law work is a painful work, but it's a necessary work. If the church does not discover what sin is through the law of God, then she will never know what sin is. She'll never be able to define it. And because she isn't doing this today, we cannot be surprised that the idea of the wrath of God simply doesn't make sense and that it isn't being preached. And as a further result of this, the church has begun to listen to the solutions the world is offering. But instead of that, we ought to begin with this question. And that is, having understood the wrath of God, what is it against? What is it that makes the wrath of God necessary? And the answer is sin. Sin is defined as ungodliness and unrighteousness. And those are categories that you will find in God's law. And the more we see what sin is, like Paul did, the more we will understand why God's wrath is revealed against it and how it is precisely that the gospel is the solution. But the second question that we have is this, is that fair? And there's two reasons for asking this. Is it fair that God should reveal his wrath against the sinner? One is that man is so sinful, the question uh, obviously uh, becomes, is it reasonable for God to expect him to be righteous? 
a man who is so lost in sin and so frail and feeble that he cannot possibly, despite his best efforts, be righteous? Is it fair that God should reveal his wrath against such a one as this? And second, in asking the same question, the second reason for asking that question is that from the standpoint of the Gentiles, which it seems this chapter is addressing, why would God hold them to the standard of something they did not possess? Again, is it fair? They didn't have the law. Could God really expect them to be righteous? Is it right and righteous for God to reveal his righteous wrath against them? And in answering the question, is it fair, Paul makes three assertions in verses 19 uh, through 23. And the first is that God, uh, his, his revelation of himself, has been perfectly clear. He has revealed himself in such a way in all the world that all men might know him. Uh, in fact, Calvin says, I'm, and I'm going to read a series of quotations, that uh, even uh, the simplest uh, and the meanest intellect is, is able to grasp something of the light and the sparks of divinity is revealed in creation. This is something that God has made abundantly clear in his creation, which we saw uh, in Psalm 19, and which uh, we see in many of the Psalms, but we see evidently enough in the creation itself. If you look at what Paul is saying in verse 19, it begins with the word because. So he is again stating a reason. The wrath of God is revealed against these things because... In other words, it is right for God to do this because God's revelation to man is so clear, it is so unmistakable, that it is impossible to miss. It is impossible to miss. And he's revealed himself in two main ways. First, Paul says, in them. That is, internally, man has a sense, what Calvin calls the seed of divinity, uh, an internal sense of the divine, which uh, man cannot escape, he cannot ultimately suppress he cannot get rid of it. Uh, you find uh, religion in all of the world because of this. Even in the remotest tribes uh, hidden away in the woods. You go and you, you find uh, that they have a religion too. It's because every man has a sense of God. Let me read the first of three quotes from Calvin uh, from his institutes. He says, Therefore, since the, from the beginning of the world, no country, town, or even household has managed to do without religion. There we have a tacit admission that in the heart of every human is stamped a feeling for divinity. A feeling for divinity. That's what he calls the seed of divinity, which all men alike possess. It is revealed in them. But, but what reveals it to them is what is made Paul says that is the created world in nature, what we call general revelation or what uh, Psalm 19 opens with as the heavens declaring the glory of God. Again, in this unmistakable way, it has been made clear. They are clearly seen, Paul says, verse 20. And what is seen in particular in verse 20 are his invisible attributes. Specifically, his eternal power and Godhead. In other words, the, cre the creation has always declared the glory of its maker, the eternity, the power of its maker, his essential difference, that he's unlike the creation that he has made. Let me read another Calvin quote. He says, because God desires that the chief end of the blessed life should be to know his name, he reveals himself clearly to everyone, 
so that he should not seem to want to deny some men entry into his happiness. For although in his nature he is an incomprehensible and hidden from human understanding, he has impressed on each of his works certain signs of his majesty, his works that is being creation, by which he makes himself known to us according to our small capacity. Signs, I say, so familiar and so obvious that the blindness and most untutored of men have no excuse for ignorance. Thus, however veiled his essence is to us, his qualities which are continually open to our view reveal him. First then, whichever way we turn our eyes, there is no part of the world, however small, in which at least some spark of God's glory does not shine. In particular, we cannot gaze upon this beautiful masterpiece of the world in all of its length and breadth without being completely dazzled, as it were, by an endless flood of light. What we see in the world is God and the glory of God. The fact that there is a God, he is known by his works. You cannot consider the works of God, the created works of God, without considering him. They all reveal him to us clearly. They manifest his eternal and invisible attributes. They all tell us that we owe our being and thus our life to him. We cannot consider our place in this world without being impressed not only with the fact that there is a God and that we owe our life to God, but that in doing so we are meant to glorify and thank him. And yet Paul says that's exactly what man doesn't do. In verse 22, let me read the last of Calvin's quotes. And again, the sense here is not only that we know there is a God, but that out of this knowledge comes the sense of the need for godliness and righteousness. For how can your mind conceive of God if you do not immediately see that you, who are his handiwork, are by right of creation subject to and dependent on his rule, that your life should be devoted to his service? If that is so, it obviously follows that your life is terribly corrupt, if not governed by obedience to his holy will. There is no way to escape this knowledge or this conclusion that there is a God and that we owe our life to him, that we're meant to glorify him and thank him. But the second assertion that Paul says, for as obvious and as clearly as God has made this fact known to man, that men suppress the knowledge of God. Verse 18, it's something they hold down. However unsuccessfully, nevertheless, they push it down all of their lives. They know it, but they deny it. If you ever speak to an atheist, what you notice is the terrible pains they are to explain away a God they believe does not exist. And the result is, Paul says, they embrace a lie in place of the obvious truth. Verse 25. And what he says further is that this is something that men are eager to do, the suppression of the truth. They do so deliberately throughout their lives. The whole process he's describing in verses 19 through 23 is man at pains to suppress what he knows is plainly true. And the reason they do so, he says, is twofold. First, because of unrighteousness. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They love their sin. And so they wish to live in such a way that there is no God. And why would that be? It's because, as we just saw, that the knowledge of God carries with it not just the knowledge of his being, but the fact that I ought to live for him. I ought to thank him. I ought to glorify him with my life. But every time I sin, I'm conscious of the fact that my sin, by my sin, I deny that very fact. Sin is the fundamental reason that men seek to deny the existence of God. 
because they wish to deny the fact that they're accountable to him. But another reason, Paul says, is the folly and pride of human wisdom. Verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and so on. It was as as Adam sought to do in the garden through the temptation and the cunning of the serpent. Men wished to be wiser than God himself. And that is, in essence, a description of all human philosophy and even uh, today much of human science. It is man's uh, attempt to triumph over God himself. And it is utter folly. Professing to be wise, they became fools because they denied the most fundamental and the most obvious truth of all. That is the fact that there is a God and that we're accountable to him. And that everything in creation that we study and discover is meant to reveal and glorify him. And the result of all that leads us to the third assertion. Where he says that their minds are darkened, verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's very similar to what Paul says about the unregenerate mind in Ephesians chapter 4. And this also explains something that Calvin says. Uh, I had to wrestle over this myself. Calvin keeps saying, if you read book one of his institutes, that all of this is so plain that no one could possibly deny it. And yet, man is so depraved and he's so sinful that he cannot profit one whit from this knowledge. And I thought, how could that possibly be if the point is that it's so clear that it would be impossible to deny? Well, the fact is that men's minds are darkened. And the more they are darkened, the more they are deceived and the less the truth is any impression upon them at all, which is really what Calvin is saying. The whole world screams of the existence of God. It demands this as a necessary inference. Yet men become so debased in their thought that they simply do not and cannot see it. But let us remember that this is the result of a deliberate and willful rejection of the truth. They set out on a path of destruction and so they were destroyed with the result that their religious pursuits and ambitions become utterly depraved and devoid of truth and wisdom. They become idolaters, Paul says. And so he says, which is really the third assertion, although it's part two of the third assertion, their minds are darkened, and so they're without excuse. Verses 20 and 21. They deny the truth so that they are without excuse. This is the answer to our second question. The question you remember is, is it fair? Is it fair that God should hold the Gentiles accountable and man in general accountable as sinful and too sinful to ever be righteous? Well, if you start with man in his final state, at the end of the process, or the process when he's so debased in his thought that he can't possibly see the truth anymore, when he is blind to what, he obvious, uh, to what is obviously true, uh, what he obviously knows is true, I mean, then you will have a difficult time answering this. But when you see that man has done all this deliberately, that it was his own doing and that God revealed himself clearly, then it becomes clear who is at fault. It isn't God, but man. The reason man does not see it is because of his own sin and his own desire to suppress the truth. Man is the one who has done it. Man is the one who rejected God and chose folly instead of true wisdom. God was all around man, but did man see God? Well, at first he did, but he held it down. He suppressed it and chose rather a life of sin and debauchery and lies and folly. 
But more and more, man found that he could not any longer see what he wished not to see. And so convinced himself that really wasn't there all along. And that is God himself. And so Paul says there's no excuse for man. Man is accountable to God. He's accountable because he knew better. Because it was all so clear to him. But he decided it was better to be wiser than God himself. And so man is without excuse. But the question then, which I have in closing, is what is the value of seeing this man without excuse? And I have three answers to this question in closing. The value of seeing man without excuse is that it tells us or it helps us to see that man is accountable to God. And man will never see his need of the gospel until he sees this, until he realizes his position and his dilemma. Let him plainly see that there is a God and that he is glorious and that there's no way to deny or escape this fact. And nothing less than godliness and righteousness and glorifying him and thanking him is worthy of his name. Second, the value of seeing this is to glorify and vindicate the justice of God and the damnation of sinners. This is something we have difficulty saying. It's one of the reasons that we have trouble preaching or affirming or believing the wrath of God. But let me say it again. God is glorified in the damnation of sinners. It's one of the most obvious truths of Scripture. And it's the the great fact that the last day will reveal. The question, again, is, is it fair that God should damn sinners or is it just? And the simple answer is, it is. Nothing could be so plain once you realize what man has done in light of what God has done. God did not distort the knowledge of himself. Man did. And so God is just in damning him. But the most important answer to this question, what is the value of seeing the wrath of God revealed against a man who is without excuse, is that it answers conclusively why man cannot achieve or attain a righteousness of his own before God. Man cannot be justified through his own efforts or his own merits in the courtroom of God. It's because of this. What is said in these verses, that man is in the process of suppressing the truth. He's being given over to his own debauchery and folly. He does all that he can to deny the existence of God. Look at the condition of man apart from God. It is a life not full of God, but devoid of it. Something that we will see more and more in the coming verses. But the point is, man has made certain that it is so. It is man who has rejected God. But then look at God's response to this fact. On the one hand, we see that his wrath is revealed from heaven against it. But likewise... We see that the gospel and the righteousness of God is revealed to men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The gospel is addressed to men in this very state. Men who are accountable, men who are without excuse. The gospel says, turn to God and be saved without cost, without works. Look to me as your salvation and your savior. Romans chapter three, verse twenty one. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is at the cross. And let me just read verse 25 because we have the answer to the wrath of God there. which you won't find in the RSV whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Through faith to demonstrate 
his righteousness. There you find the wrath of God dealt with. There you find the righteousness of God revealed to all who believe, to all who have fallen short. God says, come to me through the bleeding sacrifice of my son and be saved freely by faith. Do you see how much, beloved, the truth that is being expressed in Romans chapter 1 magnifies the grace of God as revealed in the gospel and causes us to glory in it all the more. Let me read two more verses in closing. Moreover, verse 20 of chapter 5. The law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the gospel, beloved. That is the answer to the dilemma. To men who are without excuse in the eyes of God. Amen. And let us come now to the table.